a Tampa Bay Times podcast on Florida education issues. I'm reporter Jeff Solacek, and today we have a two-part podcast. The first part will be with higher education reporter Claire McNeil, who's going to be talking about some of the goings-on at the University of Florida with the threat of a white nationalist activity at the campus coming up real soon. Then we have Representative Manny Diaz, the chairman of the House, the Florida House, Education Appropriations Committee, who is responding to some of the comments made earlier this week by Polk County School Board member Billy Townsend. Let's begin with Claire. Claire, you are where now? You're at USF and you have been covering higher education mostly at UF all week long. What's been going on? I say, you know, knowing full well that you've been covering one of the biggest stories in the country. It's been a pretty hectic week. So, um, where did it all begin? Well, it, it, this actually began um, much earlier than this weekend, but it was really the events in Charlottesville that bumped everything that's happening at U.S. into the spotlight. Um, earlier in August, Richard Spencer applied to speak at the, the university, and he's very well-known, a uh, notorious white nationalist who believes in creating a white, quote, ethno-state achieved through uh, what he calls peaceful ethnic cleansing. So pretty, to put it lightly, pretty controversial ideas. And uh, he had applied to speak at UF. They reserved a spot for him as they would for any third-party speaker who wants to rent space. But uh, Spencer's group was part of uh, the organization and the demonstration, the Unite the Right uh, movement um, in Charlottesville this weekend where obviously violence broke out. And so at that point, UF's president decided to write to the student body to say, well, hey, look, uh, he wants to make UF his next, one of his next stops. So having him come to the University of Florida ordinarily would be something that would be okay? Is that right? And then they decided that because of the threat of violence, it might not be okay? Well, so the university in its bylaws says that any group may rent out space as long as they cover the requisite cost and that the university may not discriminate against any guests based on content. So when President Fox at UF first sent out an email, he he reiterated that. He said, look, I find this guy's views um, abhorrent, but the university has rules to follow. And then after several days of of, uh, looking at security costs, and talking with local and federal police, the university said, you know what, actually, uh, we have decided that the threat of violence is enough for us to cancel the event. And uh, it's unusual. The school has never, as far as they uh, can remember, has never denied an application before. And so, yes, this is uh, certainly an unusual move. Now, you went out to Gainesville. Did you find any support for having the speech on just the grounds that let the guy talk and we'll just say that we don't agree with him? I heard that from some students. I should also be clear that students aren't back on campus yet, so it's a bit of a ghost town right now. They should be moving in 
imminently. But when I was there, the few students milling around, some of them told me things like, well, obviously I disagree with his views, but at the same time, there's a curiosity that I am interested in seeing what he has to say. Or one student told me he studies art and he is really wary of censorship. And he's worried about the slippery slope of the university banning a speaker like this uh, because who knows what what other people might be um, restricted from campus or told that they can't speak. Uh, he, he, I think he just saw this as opening the floodgates to um, a much trickier situation, which legal experts have told me this week is the case. U.S. is going to have a pretty tough time. Uh, after you wrote that story, did the university people signal that maybe they might back away from their rejection letter, so to speak? No. Um, I spoke with UF yesterday, and their spokeswoman told me that they plan to fight vigorously. And I, one thing that I learned in my reporting was that um, I, I spoke with Peter Lake, who is a higher education law expert at the university, and he said, look, any school in UF situation is probably going to go to court. Either they uh, give this guy, censor uh, his security estimate, which would be extremely high based on what happened in Charlottesville, and he would sue, potentially, or they deny his right to speak and he sues, or he comes to campus and potentially another group sues. He, he said UF was going to be in court one way or another, most likely, and that by denying Spencer, they at least staked their flag in uh, their moral stance. So they they said, this is where we stand. They made it very clear. And even if they go to court and lose... So they're taking, a, they're taking a moral stance, which is more than we can say about some leaders around the country on issues like this. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a hard, it's been a hard position for colleges. Um, Auburn for instance, banned Spencer. They canceled his speech, and they lost. And he did end up coming to speak. There were a few hundred protesters, a few arrests, but mostly it was peaceful. Um, but they went through something very similar as to what uh, appears to be shaping up for U.S. Uh, elsewhere, there was a university that I think took an interesting approach. I'm, I'm blanking on the name right now, but um, Spencer came to speak, and instead of banning him, the school president said, we're going to open up the football stadium and we encourage all students to go fill the stadium and show how much support there is against the ideas that Spencer holds. And it was, I think a really moving event to see a whole stadium full of people who very strongly disagreed with, um, you know, what, what UF has characterized as racist rhetoric from Spencer. That is a great idea. I wonder if UF might consider that tack rather than spending money on lawyers. Yeah, well, there is a counter-protest brewing. Um, there are more than 2,000 people who say they still plan to show up in September to rally against Spencer. Um, they're expecting UF to lose in court, and they expect that he will still end up on campus sometime next month. So I don't expect this story to go away anytime soon. It does feel like a story that belongs in Florida after it went to the heart of the Declaration of Independence site, right, with Thomas Jefferson and the University of Virginia. Coming to the University of Florida seems kind of right because didn't the University of Fl or didn't Florida just kind of put 
the Trump movement over the top at one point? Yeah, well, it is really a political battleground. I mean, people are kind of scratching their heads as to why U.S. and why Gainesville. Richard Spencer at least attended the University of Virginia. He knows Charlottesville. Um, I think he knows what that campus culture and climate is like. It's less clear if he has here his group has ties to U.S. Um, but what one student told me was, um, well, you know, you have this um, it, college campuses are attractive to people like Spencer because he knows that they get him attention. So he gets to come show up here and students who are really politically active will either come support or rally against him and and they're talking on social media and all of a sudden a frenzy is brewing, college administrators have to react, the local media reacts. And Gainesville is interesting because it's um, a very blue town surrounded by Alachua County, which is uh, has fairly rural and, and more conservative parts. So it is um, a, a push-pull between um, different beliefs that can contribute to the firestorm that I think Spencer's group really wants to see. Well, I really appreciate all your expertise, which has come very quickly, I, I know, because you didn't really expect this one to come. Before you go, is there anything else on your beat in, in Florida's higher education that really we should be paying attention to? Because I know so often we talk about K-12 and we forget that we have a big, huge university system out there. That's a great question. Let me think. Well, it's uh, just speaking of everything happening right now politically, it's, it's a really fascinating time to be watching higher education. Just a couple weeks ago, there was a big um, uproar when it seemed like the Trump administration hinted that they would be uh, rolling back uh, affirmative action. Um, it, it turned out that that was not the intended comment, but for a, a few days, um, heads were spinning about the way that colleges would have to overhaul their admissions, the way that um, you know, race is considered behind closed doors. Um, Betsy DeVos has been taking a lot of heat from survivors of sexual assault who say that they're worried that she's going to uh, remove protections that President Obama put in place for survivors. And uh, it's really just a battleground right now. Um, but it's still not even entirely clear where these issues are headed. Um, there's much that is yet to come from from Betsy DeVos and the, the Trump administration in terms of higher ed. So, I feel like I can't have too many things on my schedule because uh, you never know what's going to come up. All these things have um, really been uh, whirlwind-type news stories. Yeah, and we're coming to depend upon you. You're doing awesome. And I'll just say I'll say that, you know, I've, I've, co I've been covering Florida education for a long time, and it's great to have you in the higher ed beat because I know we can trust you to bring us the latest and the best. So thank you, Claire, for spending time. And we'll talk again soon. Really appreciate it. And now let's turn to our conversation with Representative Manny Diaz. As I mentioned before, he's the chairman of the House Pre-K-12 Appropriations Committee and uh, one of the key spokespeople in the House Republican Party on education issues. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me. I guess first off, um, I want to give you the opportunity to say whatever. I don't know if you've listened to what Mr. Townsend had to say, but he was basically suggesting that the Florida legislature has a heavy hand, too heavy of a hand in Florida education, and um, we need a change to the model. And, and 
that it's not working. He called it a discredited and failed model that needs to be replaced. Yeah, I mean, I, ultimately, I, I find that laughable because Florida is seen as a national model, uh, and, and any time that we take any steps here, uh, it's it's replicated. We see it replicated all over the United States. Um, you know, it's obviously he's he's a local board member and he's going to have his say, but I, I don't think um, that you know his opinion in in Polk County. Uh, is necessarily reflective of what we see across the state. Uh, is the system perfect? No, but um, without accountability, what, what would he rather do us go back to the times when we were graduating kids out of high school and they weren't even able to read on the eighth grade level? And I think that that was a crisis and it was embarrassing. And, and because of the policies that have been put in for accountability, um, even though they're not perfect, uh, we've seen our reading levels uh, go up and we're actually uh, – graduating kids that are able to go off to college and go into the workforce um, and read the 10th grade level do it's appropriate. So I, I think it's, it's easy to criticize, um, but at the end of the day, the, the role of the legislature is we are, the state is responsible for the overall education system. It's a statewide system, um, and, and school districts are appendages of the state, and they have a responsibility locally to oversee local policy. Um, but I believe that it has, you know, not only my belief, but it's the data shows that it has worked. Um, unfortunately, whenever you have systems that are put into place, there are some unforeseen circumstances or uh, secondary effects that you're always trying to curb because no system is perfect. Um, but the ultimate result is not only do we have better prepared students, but we have competition, which which is provided uh, for some incredible programs that have been developed across the board and across our state by school districts, by charters, by magnet schools, uh, and by, by even by our virtual schools, which are now available for our students that didn't exist before because there was no competition and no need. Well, we have heard a lot of people say that the legislature does set a lot of the policy and even a lot of the budgeting for the school districts, and that there have been complaints that it takes away from local control. And I know even you had talked at some point about, you know, scaling back some. Is there is there a middle ground, perhaps, that where maybe school boards can feel a little more empowered to do certain things and still have the legislature do what it needs to do? Yeah, I mean, and, I, and I've, I've, we've spoken before, and I've told you that I'm, I'm in favor of having uh, of the most local control, which I believe is at the principal level. And I, and I believe the school board's role is to provide local policy to make sure that curriculum that's being um, put into the classrooms in their community, you know, coincides with the values of that of that community uh, where those schools are located. Um, but also, there has to be statewide policy because we do have a uniform system of public schools, and that includes, you know, our traditional public schools or charters or virtual. Um, but I, I think there's tremendous room. What what we have to understand is everybody's role and. The state has a role in, in, in overall policy, but school boards have a role in providing local uh, policies. At the end of the day, I think that, you know, the ability for them to give their principals the most local control at the school level. Every neighborhood is different. Every school is different. Uh, every student is different. And so the ability to have that local control uh, at that principal's um, discretion I believe that whatever we can do to provide that flexibility, that, that I'm in accordance with. But there has to be accountability to go with it. So what I would say is something that we passed this year, for example, schools of excellence, is 
if a school is, you know, if a school is getting it right, if their students are performing, and if we know they're getting a quality education, then they obviously know they're doing something right at that local school. So what we want to do is provide more flexibility for that school to continue to do those things that are right. But where you have schools that are not meeting standard, that are not providing the proper education for those students, there needs to be continued pressure until that school can get it right. And ultimately, those those solutions usually come from, uh, you know, local controls, local issues. But at the end of the day, there has to be that pressure in order to um, get them up to that standard. Uh, and again, we are measuring what's being taught, not teaching what's being measured. Um, and that, that's important. But at the end of the day, there has to be a standard um, that is provided statewide, and, and we need to continue to push that. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm actually very proud of the work we've done in Florida and continuing to push accountability because it has produced not only results statistically, but results in that parents today have a, a, a much larger variety of choice options for their individual student than they did even 10 years ago. The whole idea of testing always seems to come up whenever we have this conversation, and and a lot of people feel like the curriculum has in some ways been narrowed because of the tests and that too much is re- is placed upon the outcomes of the test rather than looking at the test as one piece of the puzzle. Is there anything to that argument, or do you feel like testing is used appropriately in Florida right now? Well, the problem is that whenever you put these tests into place, uh, it's kind of a necessary evil, right? But uh, ultimately, the curriculum is really of local control, and they are they are able to make those decisions. The standards that are set, and there's a lot of confusion when it comes to the standards and curriculum are not the same thing. So we say students have to meet certain standards. They have to learn certain things before they get to this grade and that grade and this level. That's Those are the standards that are set. How you teach that, the curriculum, there's a lot of flexibility and a lot more. And, 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 and in fact, the legislature has put in recently some more flexibility when it comes to local control where the content of that curriculum is. And I think it's important that, that, you know, that taxpayers, constituents, residents know that, 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 that ultimately that decision is made at the local level, even though some of these local bodies may not want to take on that responsibility. It is their responsibility. Now, the standards are set by the state and the student has to meet those standards. So I think, you know, when, like anything else, whenever you put these things into place, there are places where, where there are people that are, um, not using it appropriately and maybe putting too much pressure on one side or another. It is, it is, should be part of a larger puzzle. Um, and we should be using it at to see where we have gone, how effective our teaching is and what has to be changed in the next year. It should be a continuous improvement model. It should not be treated as an end game. So it's not, you know, an end all be all. Uh, and, and obviously we will continue to look at, we, we eliminated, uh, you know, end of, end of course exam this year. We put a study in for the SAT, ACT. So we continue to look on how to evolve and make our test um, situation better in Florida. Because at the end of the day, we, we want to do what's best for students uh, in providing uh, that we are providing the best education possible and we're measuring because if you don't measure, you don't care. You know, and we, want, we have to make sure that we're providing quality education. Now, when you have the session coming up real soon, I'm sure there will be a lot of people looking to you to see if you're going to put more responsibilities on time, you know, added mandates, different changes, looking at House Bill 7069, seeing if there are, are, is anything you want to change or fix like some lawmakers suggested. What do you see as like the couple of things that we should really be paying attention to that we should 
maybe expect out of the legislature on education? So, so there, there's uh, one of some of the things we've put into motion. have studies and we need that results back from those studies. For example, the SAT ACT uh, test study. A lot of states that have decided to make these, these their state tests did so before they conducted a study. And what they got back when they went to the federal government to comply with uh, ESSA is they had to conduct a study. So we're conducting the study first. Let's, you know, we have to go back and see what the data tells us. Are these feasible tests to, to measure our standards here in Florida? Is that a decision that we can make down the road? Uh, or is it something that, you know, a lot of people have spoken about, but when you try to put it into practical terms, doesn't work? You know, that's, that's something right there. Um, uh, other things is, We'll be pushing back um, the calendar on exams. We won't see that take effect. It'll be a gradual change this year and the next year fully implemented. Um, the addition of paper pencil, um, those things, we have to let the implementation take place because this is what's been, this is what districts and teachers and principals have been asking for. But once we put it into implementation, um, you, you get to see like what are the, what are the defects that come along with it and what are the tweaks that you may have to make to some of those things. So I think, uh, too many times we rush to make adjustments on things. I think we need to let this play out and let our stakeholders tell us what are the changes that we need to make because a lot of these changes that were made, believe it or not, came from our stakeholders in the field, um, and, and we actually took a lot of that into account when we made these changes. So, you know, the, the, the other thing that's been brought up that, that uh, is possibly a portion of the information is the turnaround model under 7069. Um, is it... Is it something that has uh, some tweaks required to make sure that it's that it's flawless in the transition? We feel that there's enough leeway for the commissioner or the department to make those tweaks uh, in implementation, so that there isn't uh, a district that's left out in a, on a lurch. But when that comes back, when the data comes back, is do we need to make tweaks to that timeline to make sure the concept, right, the principle is that we're not going to allow schools to just be in perpetual failure, but is there an adjustment that needs to be made in that timeline? We will we will find out from the department once they start implementation of these things going forward. Uh, and again, you're not talking about philosophical changes. You're talking about tweaks in, in actual uh, operational implementation that we're looking at. So those are things that we will have to continually look at. Um, you know, there's there's other things that we that we will look at with school construction and things of that nature for trying to provide more flexibility for school local school districts in, in their construction methods. Um, also, um, there's there's other things with um, certification that we will continue to tweak to try to make sure we meet the needs of these uh, of these schools and districts. Are you referring there to the teacher certification tests that it seems like have become super hard and lots of people are struggling to pass now? Yeah, I think we have to be very careful with those. Uh, I, I, we, we tried to tweak certification this year on, on, on other requirements like classroom requirements, which um, if you have a content expert, you don't necessarily need to send them back to a college to take certain courses. We feel that it's more effective to have the district or the school do the professional development on the ground. I would be hesitant to, to you know, to really start to move into the test yet, um, but it's certainly something that we have to look at and keep an eye on to make sure that if adjustments need to be made, we're, we're there to make those adjustments. Are you expecting any major education legislation out of 2018, or can we take a breather now? Well, we're never, it's Florida. We're never going to take a breather. I think um, I think what you may see is a shift towards uh, looking at, number one, providing more flexibility uh, to our traditional schools, 
Uh, I think we may we, we may look at some of our other programs like our tax credit uh, scholarships and our Gardner, and then we continue to improve those. Um, I think uh, we we have to look at some of the more technical issues with virtual education and, and uh, a global uh, teacher background uh, check system that right now doesn't exist because it's county to county for for statewide teachers because um, it doesn't make any sense to be virtual, right? If you have to go district to district. So I, I think that we're going to be looking at the, the grand scheme of things. It'll probably be, uh, obviously, we won't, we're, we're probably not looking to do any uh, wholesale changes on the charter side, um, but but on the other parts of uh, our educational landscape, I think we're going to look at uh, everything across the board and, uh, and, and make some tweaks or, or push some, um, some policies that are, that are going to expand or improve choices. I always wondered why charter schools were not subject to some of the same red tape as the uh, traditional schools. If, if that works, then why not remove some of the red tape that's placed upon the traditional schools as well and let them just do what they know works? I'm all for it. And we've always asked, I've always asked districts, what, what can you do? What can we do to remove some of this burden? And I'll be honest with you, the only answer that I really keep getting back from them is, you know, SREF, which is the construction standards by which, you know, because districts have to build to, and a lot of, a lot of people don't understand this, the reason that district codes are higher is not because they're safer, it's because they're built to, to shelter code, uh, hurricane shelters. Charter schools don't have that, don't build to that code because they're not, they're not shelters. I believe we have enough shelters in our, in our, uh, in our state across the districts. So I think that when a district is building an annex to a building or an additional park, I think that what we should do is allow them to have the same flexibility as charters. I'm all, I'm all for that, because I think they could save money when they're building additional annexes or walkways or, or new buildings. Um, that's one place. The other place is, look, they should have, they should have school, school-wide average for their class size, no doubt about that. As, as an educator who sat in, in an actual school building and had to do master schedules, kids are not widgets. And so you have to allow for educators on the ground to make the best decisions. I think there was an issue in the constitutional amendment um, with that. School-wide average is the way to go. So that that's another flexibility. Outside of that, a lot of the red tape is really created by their own school districts. It's not something that, you know, uh, charters don't have. Charters have to deal with their boards. School districts have to deal with their boards. Um, I, I would I would encourage our school board members to push to provide more flexibility for their individual schools outside of those things that, that I just mentioned. And if there are other things that would help provide more flexibility, I'm all for that. I, I believe in, in providing flexibility for individual schools um, and, and letting those leaders do their, their job at, on, the, on the ground. Okay. Well, I really appreciate it. I don't know if there's anything else that you wanted to mention specifically. I wanted to um, give you that opportunity if there's anything else that you either heard in that podcast with the Polk County School Board member or anything else that just needs to be said. Yeah, I mean, look, it's, there's, there's, people are going to have their opinions, and, and it's, it, it's great that they voice them, and it, it's easy to criticize the legislature, but when, when you have to actually step into the shoes and pass policy and address statewide issues, sometimes there's a myopic view of what's going on, and, and people in local areas only see what affects them but across the state, there's no doubt that we still have some issues to tackle. Uh, and we decided to take an aggressive approach and, you know, people get upset and that's fine. Um, because if you're not doing anything, uh, that's the only time that you're, no one's going to be upset at you. But 
there are some critical uh, issues. And, you know, I just heard today that Hamilton is joining the, the lawsuit against 7069. The funny part about that is these are districts that have no charter schools that are, you know, overwhelmingly providing, uh, are not providing a, a quality product to their students. And, and, and 7069 provides resources, and it does provide some, some uh, implementation that they have to take place. But at the end of the day, it's for those students specifically. So I, I just find it ironic that some of these um, school districts that are joined, that are saying that are joined the lawsuit that doesn't exist, by the way, um, that they're making these statements when they're not in a position where they should be welcoming the help and, and trying to figure out how to best use the avenues available to this bill. So, I, 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 you know, we will continue pushing and doing the right thing and uh, and look forward to continuing improving uh, Florida's education system. And that's the end of our podcast. If you'd like to participate in conversations about these or any other issues, visit our Facebook page, Tampa Bay Times Gradebook. You can always follow our breaking news on our blog, tampabay.com slash gradebook. I'm reporter Jeff Solacek. Thanks again for listening.